0: Well, we're in Genesis 42 and 43 this morning, Genesis 42 and 43. We're in the middle of studying the life of Joseph, if you're new to Desert Springs Church this week, and if you're new to the Bible, you might understandably be more familiar with Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, than you are the biblical story. There are important differences between the play and the biblical account. And don't worry, I won't give you a a petty bit-by-bit theological critique of the musical, but the big picture difference uh, should capture our attention, I think. The musical begins with the narrator telling us, All I need is an hour or two to tell the tale of a dreamer like you. We all dream a lot. Some are lucky, some are not. But if you think it, want it, dream it, then it's real. You are what you feel. Or as the Joseph character puts it after his rise to power, it only goes to show you Anyone from anywhere can make it if they get a lucky break. Well, if you've been with us in our study of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, you know that what we've been seeing is not about luck or wishful thinking or breaks, but about a sovereign and wise and good God who is orchestrating events and people to bless the world through the offspring of Abraham. God is overcoming, even using evil intentions, evil people and natural disasters to put his man in this prominent place for the preservation of the promised people. And so we left off last week with Joseph as the second in command in Egypt during a widespread famine. Remember, his brothers sold him into slavery back in chapter 37, and that's how Joseph got to Egypt, geographically speaking. But then in Egypt, after some big ups and downs of his time there, and through many years gone by, Joseph, we saw last week, was able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams about the coming famine. And he also conceived a plan to have sufficient grain on hand for when the famine came. We've been seeing that these were God-given dreams to Pharaoh. These were God-given insights into the interpretation of the dreams that Joseph had. It was God-given wisdom to conceive and carry out the plan to have grain available in the midst of a famine. God's hidden hand was behind it all in the biblical account, orchestrating events for his people's good. But he's not done, is he? The story is far from done at the end of chapter 41 of Genesis. Several matters still need settling. For example, Joseph once dreamed that his family would bow before him someday. But at this point in the story, his family is hundreds of miles away from him in Canaan. His brothers have pretended him to be dead for a couple of decades. His father has presumed him dead these 20-plus years. So will his family really bow before him as God seemed to have revealed? Will there be family reconciliation going forward? Will there ever be any healing between these people? And will Joseph's brothers, the future figureheads of the 12 tribes of Israel, will they have any spiritual wake-up call Or will they continue in their treacherous ways? Well, Genesis 42 and 43. Let's just start with chapter 42. It's a big chapter. It'll take us about six minutes to read it. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the, among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, "'It is as I said to you, you are spies. "'By this you shall be tested. "'By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place "'unless your youngest brother comes here. "'Send one of you and let him bring your brother "'while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, "'whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh. "'Surely you are spies.' "'And he put them all together in custody for three days.' On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them And he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. And to give them provisions for their journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place... He saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, "'My money has been put back. "'Here it is in the mouth of my sack.'" At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, "'What is this that God has done to us?' When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, "'The man, the Lord of the land, "'spoke roughly to us "'and took us to be spies of the land.'" "'We said to him, "'We are honest men. "'We've never been spies. "'We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. "'One is no more, and the youngest is this day "'with our father in the land of Canaan.' "'Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, "'By this I shall know that you are honest men. "'Leave one of your brothers with me "'and take grain for the famine of your households, "'and go away.' "'Bring your youngest brother to me. "'Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, "'and I will deliver your brother to you, "'and you shall trade in the land.' "'As they emptied their sacks, "'behold, every man's bundle of money was in their sack. "'And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, "'they were afraid. "'And Jacob, their father, said to them, "'You have bereaved me of my children.' "'Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, "'and now you would take Benjamin. "'All this has come against me.' "'Then Reuben said to his father, "'Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. "'Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you.' "'But he said, "'My son shall not go down with you, "'for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left.' If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Well, there are at least a couple distinguishable sections in chapter 42 and then a few more in chapter 43. So five headings for us. The first is an inevitable reunion. That's the banner that we should put over the first 11 verses that we read. It's an inevitable reunion. It was inevitable that the brothers would be reunited with their brother Joseph if those God-given dreams of chapter 37 were going to come to pass. What we've seen over the past several weeks is that the brothers Selling Joseph into slavery didn't thwart God's plan at all, but were actually the means of getting Joseph to Egypt for such a time as this. And the passage of time, now 20-plus years since that fateful day of the pit, the passage of time didn't hold back or delay God's plan It took 20 years of God pruning his servant Joseph to get him ready for such a time as this. It took 20 years for conditions to be perfect for such a time as this. With famine in all the land and food available only in Egypt. And Joseph in charge of the whole food operation in Egypt. Conditions are perfect. So it's a desperate situation, but one that God is behind. Psalm 105, in discussing this very passage, tells us that God himself was the one who stopped the food and brought the famine. And yet, it is a severe famine. It's a seven-year famine. It has reached Canaan. And if something doesn't change for this family, they die. And so there's a 10-man mission. Jacob sends 10 of the 11 sons with him to go to Egypt to buy some grain. But he keeps Benjamin, the youngest, back with him in Canaan. And here we see once again that that old favorite sin of favoritism with Jacob is not dead yet. It's alive and well. Remember Jacob's Favoritism for Joseph is what produced so much envy and conflict and murderous intentions back in chapter 37. And since Joseph has been gone, well, Jacob has now latched on to another son of his favorite wife, Rachel, the youngest son, Benjamin, baby Benjamin, in Egypt there's a significant encounter that takes place. It would probably seem fairly insignificant for these brothers, perhaps special that they got to meet the man in charge of this whole grain operation, but it would certainly be significant to Joseph and to the great storyline that this is showing us. Verse 6, that they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. 20 years have passed. From ages 17 to 37, people change. Of course, Joseph has changed, but not just in the natural aging sort of way. You see, Hebrew men grew out the beard and didn't cut parts of their hair But Egyptian men shaved everything, head and beard. And so it's understandable how Joseph would recognize these ten hairy Hebrews, but they wouldn't recognize this freshly shorn Egyptian prince as their brother. Joseph recognizes them. They bow before him, and Joseph remembered the dreams. There it is. The narrator Moses is making sure that we don't forget about the dreams. We don't forget the connection that's being made here. Joseph remembered the dreams, which I don't think means that he had totally forgotten about his dreams. It's just that he now, with brothers bowed before him, he recalled the dreams. He connected the dots. He said to himself quietly, ah, so this is how it happens pause here, what would you think Joseph would do next with the brothers before him on the ground? Aha, I told you so. Did you see what has come of my dreams now? That's what I might have done. That's what teenage Joseph might have done if we read chapter 37 correctly, but instead he makes a curious accusation. You're spies. You're spies, he says. Only later has it become clear what he's up to. The brothers protest. No, we've never been spies. We are honest men. Are they? Really? Are they trustworthy? They sure haven't been But has there been any change at all with these men? Well, that's what Joseph aims to find out. So secondly, we see awakening the conscience. That's the banner that we can put over the rest of this chapter. Awakening the conscience. Now, now people have a hard time understanding this part of the story. Even some Old Testament scholars wonder if if Joseph was being vindictive to his brothers, at least for a little bit until he softens up, or that he was trying to, well, he was just winging it. He didn't really have a good plan. He kept changing the plan, and rather clumsily. But I think Joseph is being shrewd and strategic for his brother's own good. It says he is testing them. Verse 15, by this you shall be tested. He's testing to see if there has been any change in them over these years or whether they're still hopelessly untrustworthy as ever. And so the test, nine brothers will go back to Canaan and fetch the youngest brother, bringing him back to Egypt while one of the brothers waits in prison in Egypt. And here's the test. What will they do? What will they do with the youngest brother this time as they travel and are away from home? Will they be concerned for the brother that's locked up back in Egypt while they're gone? But before that plan is exacted, executed, Joseph puts all 10 brothers in prison for three days, perhaps to have them think about this test and what they're going to do with it, perhaps to think about what they've done. And by the way, that's another reason for all the maneuvering that Joseph is doing here. He's putting his brothers in situations similar to what he's been through, what they've put him through, hopefully to jog their memories and to pierce their conscience. He's seeking to awaken their calloused consciences. And by God's grace, it actually has that effect. Verse 21, they said to one another, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Now, they don't mention God by name here in this confession, but they imply that their heart Present hardships are a result of their past sins and guilt. They're implying that God is doing this to them. They are reaping what they've sowed. God is bringing about circumstances for them to see their sin and to feel their guilt and to admit it. Maybe for the first time in 20 years. For 20 years... They've suppressed this guilt. For 20 years, they kept up the lie. For 20 years, they let their father mourn a son's death. But they didn't stay there. They they broke by God's grace. They confessed. They came clean with one another. They said it out loud. Do you need to do that today? Maybe there is sin in your life that you have suppressed, guilt there that you don't talk to God about. And maybe today would be the day that you say it to him. And maybe even say it to someone else. Now, their confession in verse 21 was spoken in in Hebrew, and so the brothers supposed that Joseph wouldn't understand what they said, but he knows Hebrew, and so he heard what they said. And he wept. Why did he weep here? Probably for multiple reasons. Isn't that the way emotions work? It's not just one thing. It's probably in reliving and what they said, he, he briefly relived that horrible moment at the pit. And it's probably also at the relief that his brothers were finally owning up to their guilt and even owning up to the hurt that it caused Joseph. We saw the distress of his soul, they say. But there's still another test, a test of sorts, before they leave for Canaan. Joseph sells them the grain that they came to buy, but he has his servants secretly put the money back into their bags. Are they honest men? Will they return for a brother if they've made out with some extra loot? And so the brothers discover the extra money on their journey back home, and they are terrified. They wonder if God has done this to them. Jacob back home. Father Jacob is also afraid about all this. Yes, they now have grain, that's good, but Jacob hears about the surprise money that's not theirs. He hears about Simeon's confinement back in Egypt and about the demand from the prince of Egypt that his youngest son be brought to Egypt. Jacob insists that his baby Benjamin will not be going back to Egypt with his brothers. He says, Joseph's gone, now Simeon's gone, and I will not lose my son, my only one left. He said that to sons. was a messed up family. I mean. And the chapter ends with them at a seeming impasse back in Canaan. And so we read on. Look at chapter 43 as we read on. Why don't we stand for reading some of these verses just to break this up a bit? Chapter 43, look on as I read. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, Jacob, said... Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. We'll stop there for now. You could be seated. We can put another banner over this portion that we just read making restitution. Making restitution. The famine grows more severe, grain is now running low. And we don't know how long it's been since they were last in Egypt, but it was long enough for them to go through whatever grain they got in Egypt, so it must have been months. Judah, who by the way starts looking more like the real leader of the family at this point, grows impatient with his father's passivity And he pleads with him to send the sons with Benjamin to Egypt to get more grain. And Benjamin must go. That's the deal. That's what the man said. No Benjamin, no bread. And Judah lays down his life as a pledge. A pledge upon Benjamin's safe return, which is way more brave and sacrificial than Reuben's silly offer earlier in the passage in chapter 42 where he said, "Uh, Dad, you can kill my two sons if I don't come back with Benjamin. (laughs) Now, all this should remind us of where that theme of possible substitution goes later in the Bible. That there is one from this very family line, there is one who will later be called the lion of the tribe of Judah who will lay down his life literally as more than a pledge but as a substitute sacrifice that we might go free. That's where the story's headed in the big picture. But back to Canaan, Jacob Finally relents. And then in verses 11 to 14, you've got this little pocket there where a present is prepared, a plan is made, and a prayer is prayed. A present is prepared, a little balm, a little bird's bees, a little honey, some gum, some pistachio nuts, some almonds. you know, a gift basket. Who doesn't like a gift basket? The plan is made. Verse 12, take the money that you found in the sack and double it. Bring that with you. They're seeking to make restitution here. They're trying to make things right. The ironic thing here is that in this matter of what they did in Egypt, they did nothing wrong. They didn't steal. But Egyptian rulers can be precarious. And guilty consciences can often feel guilty even when they're not. A prayer is prayed. Look at verse 14. May God Almighty, El Shaddai, may he grant you mercy before the man. Note that word mercy. We'll come back to it. May God Almighty grant you mercy. Father Jacob Pray. And will God answer it? Well, we read on. Verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men who are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time. That we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. And they said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and washed their feet, and when he had given them their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with him and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? the old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, For his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlled himself. In controlling himself, he said, serve the food. We'll stop there. The banner over this section we could call Experiencing Grace. Experiencing Grace. The brothers were understandably afraid heading back to Egypt after what happened. They were even more afraid when they were so quickly identified and immediately brought to Joseph's own house. What could that mean? He's going to assault us all, make us slaves, and worst of all, steal our donkeys. They speak with Joseph's servant first. Joseph's not home just yet. They explain all that happened. That the money that was in their sacks was there by surprise. Surely an accident. We brought that money and double the money and this nice gift basket. But the servant here speaks a surprising word of blessing. Not thank you. Not, well, we'll see when he gets here. Verse 23, look at that. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks. I received your money. He's not lying. The money for the grain was received. It was just returned to them as a gift, as grace, a gift From God, he says, their God, the God of their fathers. This spoken by an Egyptian servant who no doubt has been having some productive conversations with his master, Joseph. This Egyptian servant speaks of their God, the God of their father, and of his undeserved grace. And he speaks, peace, shalom, do not be afraid. What an encouragement. And on top of that, then Simeon's brought out. And then everyone's watered up and feet are washed. And then at noon, Joseph arrives. The brothers bow before him again. This time with Benjamin there. Now all Eleven stars, as Joseph dreamed, have bowed before him. Joseph inquires about the family's welfare. Is everyone well? Is, is everyone shalom here? How's your father? Is he alive? He is. They all bow again, prostrating themselves, it says. Now a third time the brothers have bowed before their younger brother, Joseph. And then Joseph's eyes land on Benjamin. It's been 20 plus years. He barely recognizes him, but it's got to be him. He's, he's the only one he hasn't yet seen. It's dramatically described, verse 29. He lifted up his eyes and saw his brother, his mother's son. And then Joseph speaks a word of blessing on Benjamin. This is now the third word of blessing in this chapter. Jacob spoke one in verse 14. The servant spoke one in verse 23. And now Joseph speaks one in verse what verse is it? 29. God be gracious to you, my son. Uh Jacob prayed for mercy earlier on. Now it's the same Hebrew word. It's translated differently in the ESV, but gracious. It's the same Hebrew word. God has answered Jacob's prayer. God is gracious and in and through this servant. After the word of blessing, Joseph is... He's moved with compassion. Verse 30, Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm, literally boiled over for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and he wept there. Compassion. Tearful compassion. For these brothers, after all they've done, But there's mercy and grace and peace and compassion when there is repentance and sorrow for sin. And so we read on. We have three more verses left. They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him, by themselves, Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank... And we were merry with him. One last heading transformed by grace. Transformed by grace. We're reminded by the seating arrangement that Joseph is still very much playing the part of an Egyptian, and his brothers still do not know that this great man of Egypt is their brother. They will find out. Tune in next week. And so Joseph eats with the Egyptians, not with the Hebrews because that's the Egyptian custom. And yet he's slowly preparing them for the eventual big reveal that's to come. And so he seats the brothers in birth order from youngest to oldest. Guessing the birth order of siblings when kids are, say, ages 4 to 10 is pretty easy. If I don't know your kids, I probably could do that. But guessing the ages of men who are in their 30s and 40s and that there are 11 of them to be seated in perfect birth order, well, it seems to be more than a coincidence, doesn't it? And so they looked at each other Wait, you seeing what I'm seeing? And they're amazed. And portions from jo- Joseph's table were shared with them. So if we imagine that they're enjoying some good Kentucky fried chicken, I know it's a little too simple for a man of Joseph's stature. It's, it's better that. It's Egyptian fried chicken. So they're being served, and it's two pieces for you and two pieces for you and two pieces for you it keeps going and it gets to the youngest benjamin and they pull out a 10 piece meal <laughs> that's pretty good that's more than he can eat benjamin never eats the 10 piece but why Benjamin received five times the portion of his brothers. Why? Well, this is yet another test of the brothers. What was that most problematic of family dynamics back in chapter 37? Was it not that deadly recipe of favoritism and envy? With Joseph out of the picture... Father Jacob's favoritism has now been set firmly on baby Benjamin. And his favoritism of Benjamin has not only been highlighted in our passage twice, but it spanned these 20 years since Joseph's disappearance. So what will the brothers do now when Benjamin is once again favored for no apparent reason? If anyone gets the 10 pieces, it should be Simeon, who's been stuck in jail these several months. Will they protest? Will we get a comment from the narrator? And they were angry about this. There are plenty of those back in chapter 37. Their envy grew stronger. And instead, we read verse 34, the last sentence. They drank and were merry with him not only ate without complaint but they could celebrate the whole thing because these are men who've experienced grace and are being transformed by grace and so after dinner when they had gone through to the parlor Joseph broke open a bottle of wine or two or more I say more because they drank and were merry with Joseph. And if you have an ESV, you might note the footnote there. Uh, It says that the Hebrew means that they were inebriated. They were really merry. And the point here, I don't think, the point here isn't that they sinfully got drunk, but that they had a roaring good time. They don't know yet that this is their brother, but they're acting brotherly. There's a measure of acceptance and peace and celebration because of grace. They have faced their sin and their guilt. They have seen the kindness of God in his grace, and they are beginning to be transformed by grace. Where do you find yourself in this story this morning? With whom do you most identify? Uh, It's easy to identify with Joseph. Many of us can say, well, I've been pretty nice to people, and I've forgiven lots of people over the years, and I'm, I'm known for being gracious. I'm the Joseph character in the story. But aren't we more like those brothers who have sinned greatly and need mercy and compassion? We are. What part of the story are you most like the brothers? Perhaps you still need a reckoning with your sin and guilt. You haven't yet come to the end of yourself, you haven't yet come to confess how desperately in need of grace you are. Or perhaps you're on the other side of guilt and you're trying to now make restitution for your wrongs. You haven't learned yet that you can't. You'll never make up for the wrong. Or perhaps you're on the other side and you've known amazing, undeserved grace, greater than our sin. That's what we sang earlier. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There were the blood of lamb. The blood of the lamb was spilled. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse with, within. Grace that is greater than all our sin. I said that our passage is marked out by those key words of mercy and peace and grace and compassion. In many ways, those are hallmark words for the whole Bible. But as we've sung so much this morning, those concepts have their culmination and fullest realization in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Think of how often we read in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus had compassion. He saw the crowds and he had compassion on them for they were like sheep without a shepherd. So often his grace and mercy and compassion were shown in him eating with sinners. Oh, how often the New Testament epistles begin with the greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace comes from the Father and from his son Jesus on account of his work upon the cross and in his resurrection. That's where his compassion was best shown. That's where his grace and mercy were accomplished for us and that's where peace comes to us if we're trusting in that cross and resurrection and for those who trust in it Jesus says peace I give to you peace I leave with you not as the world offers peace but my peace I give to you so let not your heart be troubled do you know that peace Have you experienced this grace? I began, well, I titled this sermon, you could say, Guilt, Grace, and Gratitude. Those three G words come from the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in the 16th century. Those are the three main sections of the Heidelberg Catechism. Guilt, then grace, then gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude They're kind of like the logical and chronological order that's necessary for conversion. In other words, this is how people get saved. This is how one becomes a Christian. They come to know their guilt. They come to see God's grace in Jesus. And they're transformed by that grace to live a life of gratitude. But those three G's also serve as a familiar cycle to the Christian life. That's not a one and done kind of thing once you become a Christian. No, Christians are forgiven, but they still sin. And and when they sin, they feel their guilt. They once again call on grace. And in that grace, they walk before their Savior with great gratitude. Christian, are you in the habit of walking yourself through that cycle. Whenever you sin or when you find yourself in a season of being wayward from the Lord. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for amazing grace. We thank you, Lord, for you reaching down to where we are. Lord, we thank you for you conquering sin and death. Lord, help us in light of that grace. Lord, with great gratitude in our hearts, help us, Lord, to not only keep seeking Christ, keep bringing our sin to him, but help us as well, Lord, to seek out reconciliation with others as that arises. Lord, help us to live out the reconciliation you've given us by seeking it as much as it depends on us. We trust you for that and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.